Hello and welcome to A Week in Politics. And as you can tell from my voice, we're very excited today. I'm obviously joined by Albert, uh, but we've got Albert, we've got a great guest there, haven't we? And this is yeah, why we we're here. We've got the guest. former leader of the Liberal Democrats, uh, former business secretary, Sir Vince Cable, is joining us later on in the podcast. Uh, we've, this whole episode's a, you know, special for him. He's a fantastic guest, the biggest guest yet. And we're so excited to have him on. And before we do that, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has supported us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, um, Google Podcasts, and Anchor.fm. Uh, everyone who's, who's supported us, it's been great. This is really a special for you lot. Uh, it's a, a huge guest in British politics. We're going to be finding out days in the coalition. Uh, Albert's got a few questions down about Strictly Come Dancing, which we're very excited about as well. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, enjoy, hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you very much for the support and uh, hope you enjoy our interview with Vince Cable. Well, we are very pleased to be, well, uh, to be joined by uh, Sir Vince Cable, former leader of the Lib Dems uh, and former business secretary as well. Vince, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? Um, very well. I'm um, having what they call a good lockdown. Um, I'm spending a lot of time in Twickenham, which is my home. But my wife has a little cottage in the New Forest, and oh, so lovely. we spend a lot of time cycling and walking, which is a luxury a lot of people don't have, sadly. Yes, no, that is good, and it's glad that you're, uh, you're keeping well as well during these difficult times. Uh, but, you know, we've got you on our listeners, you are a no uh, obscure name, you're a famous name in British politics, and our listeners are so excited to hear from you of your time uh, in politics. So first I just want to ask Vince, uh, why did you get into politics, and specifically with the Liberal Democrats? Um, well, I suppose it goes back to my days as a student, uh, which are over half a century ago. Um, uh, and I got involved with the student Lib Dems. Um, I became president of the Lib Dem club at my university, which is Cambridge, and got heavily involved in union debating, that kind of thing. But it was very much undergraduate politics, and you could say it wasn't all that serious. Um, and I wasn't entirely sure whether I was in the right place. I mean, I tried to merge the Lib Dems with the Social Democrats within the Labour Party, but it's, um, uh, you know, probably similar kind of arguments we're having today, actually. Um, but it didn't quite work, and I finished up supporting the Labour Party for some years uh, until I then became disillusioned with them in the 1980s when we had the Civil War which led to the formation of the SDP and then the Lib Dems. Um, but I suppose the thing that, that got me actively involved was uh, when I'd left university and I had my first job, which was teaching economics at Glasgow University. And uh, in my spare time, I got involved in city politics. And Glasgow is a, an interesting place to get involved in politics, mm. very much a kind of Tammany Hall machine style system. Um, mixtures of some wonderful idealistic people and some who are totally corrupt. Anyway, I, I plunged in. It was a real university of life experience. I became a city councillor. I got heavily involved in, you know, housing and planning issues in local government. So in my mid-twenties, I had a kind of early baptism in politics, uh, albeit at that, in that rather strange environment. Yes, and uh, from you know getting involved with the uh, Liberal Democrats at an, uh, an early age and throughout, you then became the Member of Parliament for Twickenham. What what was what spurred you on to become a, a Member of Parliament, and um, especially in, in in Twickenham? 
Well, it was a long and you, you probably found rather boring journey. I mean, I first stood for Parliament over 30 years before I eventually got in. Um, but I, when I got involved in the SDP and the, the, the alliance with the Liberals, which became the Lib Dems, I had stood in my hometown, which was York. I stood a couple of times and didn't get in. Um, but I felt I'd invested so much time and effort, I'd, I kept going. Um, and when a vacancy came up in Twickenham, the, the existing Lib Dem councillor stood down. He'd tried for years and years and years. Um, I went for it. I mean, one of the key factors was my late wife, Olympia, who had breast cancer at the time. And my first duty really was to help her. But she felt very strongly that as a family, we'd invested enormous amount of time and effort into this uh, parliamentary campaigning and she didn't want me to give up. Um, so I kept going. Uh, and when I was first adopted, um, and by this point we lived in Twickenham, um, it was the days when the Paddy Ashdown was leader. We were at, I think, 0% in the opinion polls. And we were being overtaken by the raving loony party, amongst other things. It was considered hopeless, but gradually, um, hard work, good campaigning, put the Lib Dems back on the map. Um, I stood once in 1992 and didn't win, but we cut the Tory MPs majority and we then became a target seat. And within another heroic effort, I finally got in in 97. But I suppose the lessons are that if you really want to succeed in politics, you really do have to keep plugging away. I got in at the fifth attempt, and as I say, after 30 years after I first tried. Mm, absolutely. And you know, when you stood uh, for MP with, at the time in your party, what's different between you know, uh, the time when you first stood uh, for a member of parliament to, let's say, now uh, in your party? What would you say is the, the key differences in ideology? Um, not a great deal, actually. Um, the first time I stood for the Lib Dems, as I say, was in as an alliance candidate. It was then called an alliance between the Social Democrats and the Liberals. Um, and the problem we had was that the, the alliance, Lib Dems, could have made a massive breakthrough. This was 1983. Uh, at one point, we were 50% in the opinion polls. Um, and there was a great enthusiasm for the party, led by Roy Jenkins, Shirley Williams, uh, and David Steele on the Liberal side. Um, but we didn't make it, mainly because Mrs Thatcher had gone to war in the Falkland Islands, and there was a big upsurge in patriotic sentiment. And a lot of the people who would otherwise have voted for us switched to the Tories. So. Uh, we we were that particular breakthrough was stymied, even though we think we had twenty odd percent in the opinion polls. Um, what happens now, of course, is that we've just had three uh, very difficult elections: fifteen, seventeen, and nineteen, um, fought around the Brexit issue. The last two, anyway. Uh, we've had two very disappointing results. I mean, there's no point beating about the bush. Um, and we've got to, you know, reconsider where we are, particularly now the Labour Party has got sane leadership. Um, and the next two or three years, I think the, the, the main priorities of the Lib Dems are going to be 
rebuilding its local government base, which used to be very strong. Um, you know, places like Swansea, Cardiff, mm. uh, in Wales, Merthyr Tidwell, I think at one point were Lib Dem, uh, let alone Mid Wales, which was sort of solidly Lib Dem. We lost a lot of that. Um, so rebuilding the local base is going to be crucial, and that depends on local campaigning. Um, the Brexit issue has moved on, and we've got to you know adapt to that. Uh, and then at a national level, I hope Ed Davey will have uh, got things sufficiently sorted in three to four years' time that we make a, a really strong showing. Uh, it, I think in a, in a way that's complementary to the Labour Party. The last time we had this big breakthrough was 1997, when Tony Blair led the Labour Party, Ashdown led the Lib Dems, and we succeeded, and they succeeded in parallel seats. Uh, so that's the kind of strategic picture for three to four years time. But in the short run, the priority has to be rebuilding the local base. Mm. And, you, and you mentioned there about, you know, successful elections in the past. And 2010 was a very successful election for the Liberal Democrats, uh, went into coalition with the Conservatives. Vince, what was it like being uh, a, in the cabinet uh, during the, the coalition years? Well, just step back a little bit in terms of successful elections. I mean, it, it, 2010 looked as if it was going to be a, a big breakthrough and it, it didn't happen. The, the most successful election we had was 2005. I think we got up to 64 MPs. Mm. There was a massive upsurge of support because of the Iraq war. Charles Kennedy was leader, very popular. Um, and that, in a way, was our high watermark. Uh, 2010 was a bit down from that, but it was still a good result. Um, my, my preference, had we uh, had the choice, would have been to work with Gordon Brown, but the arithmetic in Parliament didn't allow for that in 2010. Um, and given that there was an economic emergency, I think there was an expectation that we would be cooperative rather than spoiling. Uh, and that led us into the coalition with the Tories. Um, uh, Nick Clegg was much keener on it than I was, but I, I accepted the political uh, necessity for it um, and uh, buckled down to it. It was, it was very uncomfortable. Um, uh, I had one or two very dodgy moments uh, within the government, but you know, I would say in retrospect, first of all, it was necessary. And secondly, we achieved a great deal, much of which has been sort of written out of history. I mean, there were specific things the Lib Dems did and a lot of things we stopped the Tories doing. And it was actually a very effective government compared with the chaos that we've got at the moment. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, when you're going into a coalition government, what was it like working with the, the Conservatives? Was it difficult? Was it uh, sort of an easy way? Because I know when it comes to, you know, we have a very large student following here and, and on this podcast and tuition fees always comes up and I wasn't really going to ask you about tuition fees because it's always been asked before and things like that but was it difficult working with the the conservatives on on issues like education and, and health and, and things like that? It was difficult um, um, you know I'd been fighting the conservatives for years decades on a personal level in my constituency and I was consider myself left of centre, so it wasn't uh, easy, but um, I took the view, uh, I had one of the biggest departments in the government, uh, that, you know, when we were working on a common objective, we should 
um, you know, get on with it. I had a simple message for my Tory ministers who included people like Matt Hancock. Um, you know, when you come into the department, leave your weapons at the door and we'll try and cooperate. And we did, and it was actually very productive. Uh, and I had some very good personal relationships with some of the Tories, I and mean, some of them were a pain. Um, but I worked particularly well with David Willett, who was the university's minister, which partly explains how the tuition fee thing happened, because universities were in desperate financial straits. The Labour Party um, and the Tories had already agreed to a big increase in tuition fees as a result of setting up uh, a committee which was uh, chaired by um, Lord Brown, who was then chairman of BP. Um, and, you know, we have, the problem is, what did we do? I mean, there was no money. Um, large numbers of universities would have had to close down or substantially cut their courses unless they had a source of income. And uh, the fee loan system was, a, was the only way to do it. Unfortunately, the Lib Dems foolishly, I mean, I say this, you know, we all did this foolishly, had made this pledge to the National Union of Students, which you should never have done um, about um, not increasing fees when it was so obvious that the economic crisis of the country left no alternative. So we did break a pledge and that's what did the political damage. But the, the policy we introduced was entirely sensible and has enabled the university sector to uh, grow and expand in the last decade. Uh yeah, I just I just wanted to ask with talking about the coalition government there, do you think that in the long term, when the perception of sort of joining with the Conservatives may have cost Lib Dems votes, and obviously they're in a different position now than they were prior to being in the coalition years, do you still think that that experience was worth it for the party in the long term? Well, I, I think it was inevitable. I think when you say worth it. Um, I, I think we had to go through the experience of being in government. I mean, there's no point competing in national elections and saying, well, you know, we don't want to be in government. You've got to, you know, you've got to step up to the plate. Uh, and this was the only opportunity that arose. And we had been in coalitions in Scotland and that worked very well. Um, and we, we do a lot of coalition working in local government. Um, sometimes with the Tories, sometimes with Labour, sometimes with the Greens. So I think coalition working was part of the way the party um, has to go and saw the way forward at that point. Um, the difficulty we had then, uh, which is a problem if you're a relatively small party, is that we were massively outnumbered. You know, there were five Tory MPs and five Tory ministers to every one Lib Dem. So what we could achieve uh, was limited um, and we were perpetually outnumbered. And of course, the, the worst thing that has happened is that, you know, this old adage um, is it's the victors who write history. And the history of the coalition has been written by the Tories and by the Labour Party, which of course hated us. So, you know, nobody has really um, written a, the, a proper account of the coalition from a point of view that was neutral and understood exactly what happened and was beneficial. And uh, Vince, on the, on the terms of, you know, did you ever have aspirations and, and goals to become leader of the Liberal Democrats? Uh, you know, we had 
Mick Clegg and, and Tim Farron. But and then when you came leader, was it always a, a career goal of yours to become the leader of your party? Not particularly. I, I was more interested in having, you know, when the coalition was formed, I wanted a key role in government. Uh, I would love to have been chancellor, but, you know, we just didn't have the um, firepower to deliver that. Um, no, th there was a point in 2007 when uh, Ming Campbell uh, had to step down when I probably should have uh, been the leader. I was deputy at the time. Um, but Nick Clegg and Chris Hune had already um, organised my colleagues in the parliamentary party. And they'd been preparing for the contest and I obviously wasn't going to make it. So I sort of buckled down to the job of being deputy at that time. And that's when I probably should have stepped up and would have, I think, done quite a good job. Um, when, I, when it happened in 2017, it was more of a rescue operation. Um, you know, the party was in pretty bad shape. Uh, I had got back into Parliament with a big majority, but, you know, we'd only increased our numbers by four from eight to 12, I think. Um, they needed a leader. Um, neither Joe Swinson nor Ed Davey particularly wanted to do it. Um, and my colleagues thought that I could help us get through this very difficult period. And although it was a very tough job, it was very difficult to get publicity because we only had 12 MPs. Um, I mean, you know what happened. You know, we had brilliantly successful local election results in 2019 and we had the breakthrough in the European elections and I left in, in that and I finally stood down because I realized that the party needed the next generation to lead them into the general election. Uh, and I think by that point, we were in reasonably good shape. Yeah, and, um, that's, that's fantastic to hear that, Vince. And, and when you were leading the party, what was the biggest challenges, would you say, that you faced as, as leader of the Liberal Democrats? Well, it was just incredibly difficult to get cut through. Um, when I was a cabinet minister, um, you know, my press officer would just ring up uh, Laura Kunzberg or whoever it happened to be, and then, you know, I'd be on the 10 o'clock news. Uh, but if you are the leader of the Lib Dems and you've got 12 MPs and you've got less MPs than the Scottish Nationalists, uh, even if you've got something striking and interesting to say, it's very, very difficult, first of all, to get heard in Parliament, because you're called at about, you know, 15th in a debate and very difficult to get much attention from television and radio and the press you know and I did I didn't didn't do bad but it, it was very very hard and I think people have just got to be patient with Ed you know who's got the same challenge I had but that was much the most difficult part of the job. Mm. And you were obviously uh, involved in the uh, the Remain side of the of the Brexit uh, sort of debate in, in Parliament and really come up with the, uh, yeah, the Remain argument uh, on that side because obviously Corbyn wouldn't choose and the Conservatives were uh, getting Brexit done it no matter, no matter what, either under May or Johnson. Do you think that you as, as leader in the Lib Dems took the correct position on Brexit at the time? Yes, I do. Um, I, I think there had to be a party that was unambiguously um, for remaining. Uh, I think the position we took up, I took up, uh, was to demand a referendum. Um, and, and that proved very popular. I mean, you remember those mass marches. There was plenty of evidence that until about a year ago, 
the substantial majority of the population did want a confirmatory referendum. The problem was that we were a few votes short in Parliament uh, and there was a, a division um, amongst the Remainers. Um, you know, the Labour Party had its own interests and we had ours and the Scottish Nationalists had theirs, whereas the Brexiteers um, were united, uh, primarily because Farage threw his weight behind the Tories. Um, and that was, in a way, why we ultimately lost the argument. And, and I think there were some own goals. I think it was a very bad mistake for the Lib Dems to have gone into the election with this revoke message. I think it sent a terrible signal to the voters who didn't like it. There was no reason why we had to do it. Um, I, you know, by that point I'd stepped down, so I wasn't in a position to influence it. But um, it, there, were, there were mistakes made, and that was probably the most serious. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. I just I've got a question here from a, a, a podcast regular, Odysseus, uh, who just wanted to ask. It's it's quite a long question, but he says so by challenging Farage to a TV debate. Nick Clegg gave Farage a national audience as well as validating and legitimizing him by allowing him to be in a debate with the Deputy Prime Minister. Was this a mistake by Clegg and was it based on personal frustration as opposed to being as a thought out strategic decision? Um, well, I think it, I, I'm not sure it was a mistake. I mean, I think Nick was right to take on the argument. Um, but he didn't have much choice, I think, in the circumstances. Somebody had to argue with. Farage. I mean, I had a debate with Farage in the media. It didn't get as much publicity, um, but during the European elections, we, we had a good debate. He's a very good debater. I mean, he's a very bright guy. Um, and debating him with, with him was, was fun and tricky. Um, but it was, I think, quite an important thing to do. And whatever you think about Farage, uh, he's not the extreme right. I mean, he's not a kind of, you know, the rabid racist style of his British nationalist and an opportunist but he you know he, we couldn't try to pretend he was too extreme we couldn't argue with him um, so no I, I don't think Nick was at fault I think what the one negative about that debate is that on balance um, I think Farage got the benefit better, better of it partly because although Nick had done incredibly well throughout the exchanges in two evenings right at the end he was asked this deadly question, you know, what would you do with the European Union in future? And he gave the wrong answer, which was to say, um, nothing needs to change. Well, you know, in a way that <laughs> undermined all his sterling efforts over the last few hours. So now to answer the question, we had to take it on, he had to take it on, um, that there was a negative at the end, but I, I don't think it was a strategic mistake. The reason why we lost the Brexit referendum, well, you can't blame that on Nick Clegg. I mean, it was primarily the incompetence and arrogance of um, Cameron and Osborne. I mean, they just assume that uh, you frighten the hell out of people and they'll vote for you because that had worked for them in the general election and in the Scottish referendum. And this time round, it didn't work. Yeah, no, it's, I agreed on that one. You know, it, it, as, a as a tactical, you know, political tactician there Cameron and Osborne messed up and, and that's why you know we've got Brexit happening right now but pushing on to uh, you know to, to now in 2019 Vince what do you think 
uh, the Liberal Democrats need to do under Ed Davey. I personally am a, I'm a fan of Ed Davey. I think he's the right man to take the Lib Dems forward. But what do you think that the Lib Dems have to do to you know, get the support back of in, uh, locally and nationally to be able to get back to the, uh, the, the heights that they were uh, you know, in, in the coalition years and in the, in the 2000s as well? Um, it's not totally in our hands. Um, I, think, I think we have to, you know, just buckle down and do solid political work, which the Lib Dems are very good at, um, grassroots campaigning, starting with lo a local base and taking up issues where, you know, liberal values are at a premium. No, but what I want to see us doing is getting back to the position where Lib Dems were running, uh, you know, Sheffield, Hull, Newcastle, Oldham, uh, Liverpool, um, and I had a big chunk of Birmingham, quite a few London boroughs, and quite a bit of Wales. Um, and you only do that through uh, plugging away at a local level. Um, a lot of hard work, good campaigning, we're very good at it. Uh, we were beginning to get back to our old strengths in 2019. It's the best local elections we'd ever had in our whole party's history. And I would hope, I mean, I know Ed's instincts are to head down the same road and I think it will happen. Uh, now what he it says he's doing now is listening. Um, I, I'm not sure where that's going to lead, but I, it's a good start. Um, I think part of the problem we had in the general election is that, you know, the party was talking to itself, which is why we got the revolt message. Uh, and we do need to be a bit more outward looking, um, build on in a way that people respond to, to, you know, the big challenges around inequalities, environment, uh, and the things where Lib Dems have got a unique selling point. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to see the Lib Dems, you know, get back to their, uh, their heights again, because there's a need in this country. I'm, I'm sure you agree with me, Vince, there's a need in this country for a third party, especially in, in England and Wales, that can really compete with the incompetency of the of previous years of the Conservatives and, and Labour. And I'm sure you, you agree on that one. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, there are things which don't necessarily resonate with the voters in the short run. Uh, but there is, you know, the party, there is a need for a party that draws attention to the fact that the British um, democratic system just isn't working anymore. It's totally dysfunctional. Uh, Parliament doesn't work properly, you've got this corrupt House of Lords, you've got the domination of a handful of media tycoons, um, you know, the local government has lost almost all of its power. I mean, these are the sort of big structural institutional issues that nobody else is going to take on and, and we've got to do it and the third party is a good place to start from. Yes, and Vince, we couldn't have you on the podcast without talking about your 2010 Christmas special of Strictly Come Dancing as well, uh, which I know our viewers, uh, well, me and Albert are definitely huge fans of Strictly Come Dancing, and I know some of our viewers have asked this as well. Uh, but Vince, what was it like, obviously, appearing on, I know it was Christmas special, but what was it like appearing in the, uh, in the, the, the ballroom and the sequins on Strictly Come Dancing? Well, it was very nerve-wracking because, I mean, I don't know whether you're aware of this, but it isn't pre-recorded. It is actually live. So if you mess up, you mess up. I mean, there is no <laughs> escape. Uh, and in the dress rehearsal, I think I messed up a half a dozen times. So it really was scary. Um, 
but they were lovely people. Uh, I mean, I, you know, the, the, all the, the characters that you know, I thought I thought really got on well with them, and they were very affable. And it was it's a completely classless thing, you know. You have people from all walks of life, and that that was a big politician, and, and the rest of it didn't. You know, they were interested, but it didn't cut any ice. I mean, I was just uh, just one of them. Um, the great tragedy now, of course, is that my dancing school and all dancing schools are closed because mm. you can't socially distance when you're dancing with a partner. Um, and it's, uh, you know, there's a whole generation of dancers, like my teach, teacher and partner, professional partner, uh, are just going, are unemployed. I and mean, there's nothing for them to do at the moment. Uh, and I'm, I'm not getting my lessons. And of course, that's a, that's a minor part of the tragedy. Um, but yeah, it, it was a it was a great experience, though a scary one. Mm. Absolutely, and I just I just wondered in relation to that. Um, do you think that there are any other politicians, or maybe either your Lib Dem colleagues or anyone else, who would uh, be be good on the dance floor on Strictly? Who's got the moves, um, Spence? Uh, well, the, I mean, what I to the extent to which I know the the, the one colleague in the cabinet who I knew was a dancer was Jeremy Hunt, who oh. I think does a lot of salsa and so on. So <laughs> I don't know if he's been asked on, but, but certainly he has the competence and the dancing technique. Um, so yeah, maybe in future, I, I, I wouldn't have minded being asked to do a series rather than just the one-off, but I think I'm probably past it now. Well, I'm sure we could, uh, if someone hears this podcast from the uh, BBC, I've got a few things there. Maybe we could get you, get you on, Vince. But I'm just saying, what about David Cameron? Could he go on it, do you think? Has he got the moves, the, uh, the hips to be able to, to go on? He, I don't think he did, actually. Oh. Um, I think that in the coming series, there is actually a former Home Secretary. There is, there is, yes. Um, Jackie Smith. Yeah, Jackie Smith's going on, and which would be interesting to see. Yes, I got, got to know her a little bit, and she's, you know, she'll be an interesting addition. No, definitely. And that's it. And so it's been fantastic to have you on, Vince, on the podcast. It's a huge honor for us to have someone like you come on to the podcast. It is really big for us. So I just like to say thank you for taking time out of your, your day to, to come speak to us today. No, thank you. It's good to speak to you. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, it's time for round five of the Red Ken Cup. I would say we're going head to head again. It's 2 2 at the moment, so it's all to play for still. Uh, we've said that next week, well, two weeks' time, it will be the series finale. We've got a big guest coming on, and we're going to do the finale of the Red Ken Cup then. It's all to play for still. But today's is a new game. We're playing a game called, I've made called Bold or Not Bold. Basically, I've got, a, I've got a name of some, well, not name, I've got a description of, the, of a role which some MPs have had. I want you to tell me if they were bold or not bold. So uh, we're going to start with you. So Albert, you won last time. Uh, so Odysseus, you get started if you want to go first or second. Second. I'm going to go second. So it goes over to, oh, oh. Well, you've got to go over to Albert first. So Albert, I'm going to give you a description of a, of a role this person had. I'm not going to give you the name. You don't need to tell me the name. You just need to tell me if they're bold or not bold. Okay, okay. So this first person was Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government under David Cameron. Was this person bold or not bold? Uh, I'm going to go with not bald. Well, the person was Eric Pickles, who was very bold. Oh, no. Very bold. So that oh. is no point there for you. So it goes no. over to Odysseus. Number two, he was culture, media and sport 
under David Cameron? Was this person bald or not bald? No idea. Bald, bald. Well, this person was John Whittendale, who was famously not bald. Obviously, he had a lot of hair downstairs as well, as the prostitutes would, would say. Um, so that is no points there. So it goes over to you. Very low scoring at the moment. So it goes to you, Albert. Number okay. three, this person was leader of the House of Commons under Tony Blair. Bald or not bald? I'm going to go with bald. Well, it was Margaret Becker, who isn't bald, <laughs> is a woman. More difficult than that, isn't it? You don't know who it is. So go over to you, Al Oddie, to take the lead. This is as Secretary of State for Wales under Tony Blair. Bald or not bald? Bald. Well, it was Ron Davis who was very, very bald. That is it. So Aldi took the lead there with a one point for Ron Davis. Uh, over to you, Albert. So this is it. Uh, MP for Chingford, the current MP for Chingford. Bald or not bald? Bald. You are correct. It was Ian Duncan Smith. Yeah. So level it up. So it goes over to Odysseus. Now, Odysseus, this is the thing. As you've, all on you, if you get this one right, you get the point. If you get it wrong, Albert gets the point. Albert will win. It's all what? Right. How does that make any I, sense? I make the rules. This is how it goes. So this is the mem- current member of parliament for Bromsgrove. Wait, let me think. The current MP for what place? No, no, you, I'm, not, I'm not letting you Google search this. The current MP for Bromsgrove. Need an answer. Need uh, an answer. Too, quick, too long. I feel like you're Googling. Right, Albert, I'm throwing it over to you. The current MP for Bromsgrove. He's taken too long. Albert, the current MP. Is he bald? Uh, I, yeah, I bald. I don't know. Bald? As the says, took too long. The answer is Sajid Javed. He is bald. Albert, you get a 2-1 win today, which takes you 3-2. Obviously, next week, Otto says you'll be going first to get first, second to get to choose. It's going to be a big game next week, a brand new one. We're going to be playing mustache or not mustache. Oh, the, the politician, it could be a US as well, because I want to put John Bolton in there. Yeah, um, right you've got a mustache or not mustache. New game's coming out. Albert, you take a lead in this, and it's all to play for in the Red Cane Cup. Uh, obviously Ken Livingston will be coming on in the next episode but on that bombshell I'd like to thank Albert Odysseus for joining us today I'd like to thank uh, Sir Vince Cable as well what a fantastic interview that was I hope you've enjoyed it and I will see you all next week